Hey Maniacs, Mark here. We got a great episode of Midsummer Maniacs for you today. It's not a regular episode. We're not recapping an episode of the show, but we do have an interview with Lisa Holdsworth, who is a TV and theater writer who has written for Midsummer Murders, New Tricks, Waterloo Road, Discovery of Witches, Call the Midwife, a whole bunch of British shows that are fantastic. She's written four Midsummers, Red and Tooth and Claw, Saints and Sinners, Vintage Murder, and Schooled in Murder. We had a great time speaking with her, and I know you're going to enjoy this interview. Lisa, we have been stalking you all week. (laughs) (laughs) I can only apologize. (laughs) No, we've been, uh, we've been reading your tweets and and watching lots of interviews with you. And I just have to say, I think that you are incredible. I was so moved by how often you take the opportunity to talk about how important it is to increase diversity in your business and how many times you've explained to people, you know, how you got to where you are and that you just, you just worked really hard, you know? Oh, thank you. It's, 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 I think it's probably my top priority is making sure that diversity of voices in, in television, not just British television, but all television, because I love telly. I love watching it. And if it's the same people writing the same stuff over and over again, oh, that's that'd be very sad. Yeah, you know, it would that's, be. That's exactly what got me going on. I kickstart comic books. So my comic is about three teenage girls of color. They use science to overcome supernatural enemies. Oh. And is drawn by a LGBTQ woman in the same state that we're in. And I'm I'm trying to get it so that I'm not even a white guy isn't part of the process. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's that's ultimately, you know, the goal for, as you said in last week's podcast, I'm the chair of the Writers Guild, which is the trade union for writers in the UK. So you've got the Writers Guild of America, where the WGGB, and that's our ultimate goal, that, that we'll see people at the top who are representative of what the UK looks like at the moment. It really isn't in any way. So it's, it's very stale and pale and a lot of people who went to private school so um, that needs to improve yep. and that's the case in so many industries right not just tv i work in a business school and at a, a big 10 university at a major research university and we we're constantly like questioning who we should hire and who we should work with and like hey maybe a pink-haired tattooed lady could be you know a leader in this school what do you know <laughs> It's, it's that representation that matters that that when people start to see it on to, and, I, and I think American television since the onset of, of the Black Lives Matter movement this time around, the reaction has been really clear. You're beginning to see I, I love American cop shows. I love anything that's got Dick Wolf's name on it, all of that kind of thing. And seeing how how that reaction has come through and how an understanding of actually we were part of the problem and now we have to address it is really interesting. I think it's been a fascinating year in American television. One of the things that we love about British TV is that though it seems like you guys only have about 30 actors to go around, (laughs) 
They're and that all been in Harry Potter. So. Oh yeah, Harry. Yeah. If you do like actors in common between Midsummer and Harry Potter and anything else, you know, oh, yeah. they're all there. But they're not all beautiful people. They look like a lot of them look like regular people, like ordinary people. <laughs> we We're still we love a character sure. actor. We yes. really love someone, a particular, and it's great for women as well that you don't have to be blonde and self-like. I speak as a blonde and self-like person myself. <laughs> I can say that because it's a podcast. Um, <laughs> But, but yeah, that and our soaps have real gravitas over here. I know that you've lost a lot of your soaps in America over the last few years, that, that a lot of them have come to the end. But that's where people cut their teeth on television acting. Uh, and we like, you know, proper gritty drama in our soap operas. So if you did a, a, a Venn diagram of who's been in Coronation Street, Emmerdale, which I used to write for, and EastEnders, which is probably the one you may have heard of over there, then you'd get a lot of that moving up into midsummer and, and the high-end stuff. Yeah, so so tell us about how your midsummer gig came about because you've written for New Tricks and Emmerdale and Robin Hood and then there's Midsummer. It do you know what it came out of the blue for me? I really didn't think I was right for that show at all. And I, and to be honest with you, I took the job in a sort of Okay, we'll give this a go. See how we, how we go on. Because I, I loved New Tricks, and New Tricks had a, I mean, I did uh, 11 of them in the end, and it had a very tongue in cheek um, attitude to it. We, we didn't take it too seriously. We were always looking for the funny in it. And I assumed that would be the case at Midsummer, but actually, I came in a bit hot when I first got onto Midsummer that they take it very, very seriously, and they're so difficult to structure. So if I'm absolutely honest with you, all four of them were difficult births. They were banging my head on the desk um, and getting kidnapped and taken to Pinewood to work out the story over and over again. But uh, yeah, they just called my agent and said, does Lisa fancy a pop at this? And I I took it in, in, in a very sort of, let's see how this works out. And then when I pitched the cheese idea, oh, well, this is going to go one of two ways. And it went the other way. <laughs> they just went, oh, yeah, that's really, oh, well, that's, that's fascinating. Do some more work on that. Do some more work on that. Um, and that's, we ended up with that extraordinary episode. I mean, Andy Hay did an amazing job on on directing it. I can't, and I've worked with him before, actually, on uh, New Tricks. And I knew I was in safe hands when I saw his name on the front of the script. So, uh, and uh, probably one of the best casts in British television, I think. Well, it'll come as no surprise to you that Midsummer had its issues with diversity and with Very much so. Ryan Trumay's had said. I think maybe they contacted you because you're pretty outspoken about this stuff and you had a, a proven record. I hope they sort of said, let's get her because she'll improve us where we need to be improved. I mean, that would be, that would be really nice. Better that they found a black or Asian writer to do that, but this is the business. Yeah, and it's interesting because I've been an activist with the Writers Guild for a long time now, and people are really nervous about putting their head above the parapet. It was never not an option for me. I come from a family of big mouths, frankly. So I was always going to speak up, and it's ne- I don't think it's ever harmed my career. And if I've lost jobs because of it, I'm not aware of it, and they can... And good you know, ones, right? Exactly. Good I don't want to work with people like that. Yeah. So, you know... We're we're very aware of all that going on, and we we discussed if the the demographic for Midsummer, especially in America and UK, is older white people, and you know older white people in the United States have problems. 
with, <laughs> with their, with their uh, political leanings sometimes. Yeah. And we were like, should we be saying these things? And we were like, if we lose those listeners, we lose them. I don't really care. Yeah. It, it was interesting. The, the night that episode went out on Twitter, there were a couple of um, quite well-known black actors in, in the UK, um, Jimmy Akinbola, who you can see in the first series of Ted Lasso. Oh, I love that show. Oh, we'll and talk Hugh, about Ted Lasso. Uh, oh, I love that show so much. <laughs> and Hugh Quashi, who, who is in Holby City, which is one of our big medical um, dramas, and they were saying, oh, my God, there's a black guy in uh, in Mitzvah. Oh, he's dead. It's like, well, you know, that's kind of the USP of the show. Most people that's, end that's up dead. equal opportunity in Midsummer. Everybody can die in a weird way, right? No matter what color you are. I think I gave him a good death as well. And he wasn't <laughs> like Martin killed, killed before the opening title. So, no. uh, but yeah, it would, I think the show has come on in leaps and bounds in the last few years. It's, I think it's a much better show for it as well. So you said that it was, it was difficult to get like the storyline and the plot points mapped out. Were you a Midsummer fan before you wrote for the show? Had you seen a lot of it? I am going to be really honest now. I hadn't watched a whole episode. Midsummer has a really strange, we have a strange relationship with it in the UK. It it feels like it's always on. Mm -hmm. And because it's two hours long, I I think a lot of people engage in it in a very casual in and out way. There is a real hardcore fans and they're there to be, um, respected and, and they keep the show going and there's a reason it's been going for as long as it, it has so I'd not really engaged with it I thought it was quite middle class and it wasn't really for me and I was aware of the Brian Trumay stuff as well so when I got the offer the first thing I had to do was order a box set and the, I mean, that's how long ago it was and now I've just yeah. screened it but order a box set and I sat and watched episode after episode after episode and tried to absorb it and absorb the, the structure it is a real really oddly structured show because it goes out on commercial television in this country there's we get what we call the ad tag so as you, you go out you need a big hooky moment it's usually someone dying um that to come back in i mean certainly in that episode i did have the, the absolute maximum dead bodies you're allowed you did um, <laughs> it's three it's between three and five and i went for the full five um so it was it was Great fun to do, but it was definitely a head scratch. In the first draft, I didn't have enough characters. I was killing people. And they go, well, there's there's no one left to have done the murders. It just kept going. It just kept going. There are a couple episodes like that where they're on the, the sort of character sheet. There's two people left. And you're like, okay, well, one of these people did it. It's like, who's the best known actor who's still alive? Okay, they yeah. did it. <laughs> And that's, I mean, I was so lucky that, that Martin read that script and went, yeah, I'll be dead in the open towns because everybody watching that went, oh, she did it. And then she's she's dead from the cheese. So it's it's a brilliant bit of casting from, from Andy there. So the cheese was your idea. Did they give yeah. you anything, like any kind of limitations or direction or, or anything before you started writing or was it all up to you? It's mainly, don't do this because we've just done it in the last season, you won't have seen it. So, uh, and there's a bit of a hard and fast rule. They don't, even though they've done it in the past, they don't want to do it again, cults and weirdy religions and things like that. So that that literally was the only stare I got. And uh, and you put what we call a one-pager and you go, uh, this is the world I'm setting it in. So, so you're quite right. In the, as you said in your uh, podcast, we find these odd little villages <laughs> that are full of people who all work in the same industry. Yeah. And that was 
the picture and it was, I can't remember what, why it was the cheese, but it was the caves that came to me first. What an amazing look. What if Midsummer had its own cheese caves? And then I literally started Googling cheese. What's the weird thing? Found the, the uh, maggoty cheese and thought, oh, well, that's got to go in. Found the cheese needles. They've got to go in. And suddenly it, it did start coming together. And then sort of with the flip side of the idea of, of the schools. And I think there was something in the news at the time about private schools and, and scholarships and things like that. It might have been around the time our exam results come out because we're having that discussion at the moment. Our big exam results came out this week in the UK. So I think it all, it was one of those, it all started to come together eventually. And because the school part is about class, and I think that is an obsession, you'll have noticed, we're a bit obsessed with class in this, this country, and Midsummer's a really great place to explore that. Were you nervous about the cheese? Or did you feel like, oh, this is a really Midsummer thing to do, this is going to work? I was worried they might think it was a bit too tricksy and and, and themey. And we were nervous first, and, and obviously it went through multiple, I think it was 11 drafts in the end, and they're massive oh. documents because they're 90 minutes of, of screen time. But actually, the heart of the story, the bullying, stayed in place throughout, which wasn't true on the other episodes I wrote. Often the killer I started with was not the killer at the end. As we went through the drafts, oh, wouldn't it be better if he did it? Oh, wouldn't it be better if she did it? But this one, that central idea of, of the, the woman coming back to wreak her revenge stayed in the spine of it throughout. And, I, and I, I'm really, I really love that. And that was the hardest sell. They said, oh, we don't really usually do, it's usually people are doing it for money or for, uh, because they're having an affair and they're offering, offering their, uh, the people who know about it because they've witnessed something. This sort of revenge psychological aspect, it was, was a bit different for, for Midsummer, but um, they gave me the chance and, and we made it work. I think it worked really well. Yeah. Good. Um, well, I, I think when the the voice of the show kind of changed with Neil Dudgeon coming on, mm. and I think they took that opportunity to make the cast more diverse, and I think they began to look at a couple of more diverse methods. And they're into ninety episodes here. They they gotta yeah. spread their wings a little bit and do. They're running out of ways to kill people. <laughs> You you run out of ways. You literally sit there as you're writing it, going, "Okay, oh, so sharpness of breath, uh, drowning, penetrating wound, crushing. How can, how, can, how can I make this much more interesting? Because people love the weird deaths." So. Yeah. Whenever we talk to somebody about Midsummer who's only a little bit familiar with it, they go, "Is that the show where the lady was killed by the cheese?" I'm like, yes. <laughs> it is like one of the iconic murders now, and it, I think it is kind of. It's indicative of what the show's about. It doesn't take itself too seriously, you know, so that kind of death can happen. It's not, you know, a marple where, you know, everything has to be kind of, you know, serious and, and Poirot's going to get upset if it's silly. It's okay that it's a little silly. Did you know that you were writing Jones's last episode? I didn't know. And that's, it's a shame we didn't know it was, it, Jason was going to leave or else I think we would have given him a much bigger send off. It's a, the, the sort of what we call the serial element is very light, it's very light touch. And I think what's interesting about Asha, whereas now a lot of these detective dramas have terribly flawed characters who are drinkers and gamblers and womanizers, the heart of that show, the Barnabys, they're perfectly not. She's a teacher, he's a police officer, and they're, the worst thing that happens is the dog eats an eatery. 
thing and the rest is absolutely they're lovely at the heart of this terrible dark county that they live in (laughs) that's one of the things we love about the show yeah, yeah. They're a reaction to that darkness, you know. They're the they're the rock of normality that the story can hang off of. Very much so, yeah. And I like that the Barnaby detectives are not alcoholics or womanizers or you know, they don't cheat on their wives. That makes it feel kind of warm and cozy because you know certain things people might die from cheese or stuck in a dryer or whatever, but Barnaby's never going to break the rules in that way. He's never going to break our trust in him. And it makes it kind of nice to watch. Even even though, unfortunately, I don't don't think it's a reflection of the truth all the time. The idea that a police officer is so solid and so diligent. And he always, they call it the the, the Bonnet moment, which comes towards the end where he finally puts two and two together and goes, ah, and Ah. and then... (laughs) Ad break, and then where? Whose house are we at? Because he's finally going to reveal the murder, and that right in those, it's such a satisfying thing to do, and you believe it. You believe that all the while his head is turning everything over and and putting things in place, and he's looking at the the board and going, oh, if that's going on there, blah 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 blah, blah. and he's putting the 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 timeline together uh, and that's very very satisfying to write and i think i think neil does an amazing job of acting that as well we're close watchers you're well aware of that (laughs) i know know that now yeah (laughs) so we gave up timelines long ago because we have the benefit of understanding how television gets made and things like that so the first couple of of episodes of the podcast i was drawing calendars and time and everything (laughs) and then i was like this is not going to work that you just simply can't just got to go with this because some days it's sunny and some days it's not. And sometimes you got to do day for night shots and things like that. And sometimes you forget to change the clothes. And sometimes the continuity person is like, Oh crap, I forgot that. And all that (laughs) stuff. So, but you you work out in your head. I mean, it's so weird that the, the discussion with the script editor and the producers, you can have knockdown fights about does this story work? Well, how did how did you get the maggot? Why did she have the maggots in her pocket? Which is a fair question. But my answer to that is that that she had been basically stalking these women as long as she'd been in the village. She knew what was going on with the dodgy, dodgy cheese, and she was trying she was trying to expose them. I don't I don't think she actually meant to kill Jim. I'm pretty sure she didn't, but I think she certainly meant to off the women off. And, and Paul Maggie Steed was going to get it in the end, but um, I think justice is better served with her. Oh, Maggie Steed is so great in that episode. It, She's amazing. Do you know, it's, it's the second time I've written for her. She was in one of my new tricks and she was just glorious. We had a really great read through and she was just delightful. I was really nervous in that read through and she... she very much stilled my nerves really in my career. She's an absolute national treasure. She is. We remember her from Pie in the Sky. Yeah. She was so good in that. (laughs) When I was little, she was in a show called Shine on Harvey Moon, which was about sort of post-war Britain. um, And she was amazing in that as well. She was, she's great. I think we've talked about that show. I think so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sounds familiar. So how close, like how much in the process in the know are you of that casting like did you know martine was going to be in that part before you wrote it or did they come to you and say well we we want to work her into an episode or how did that or do you have to make tweaks once you hear who the cast is even if it's written 
literally that, which is until they put the cast list out the week before the read through. So we do a table read um, just to make sure it all, all works, which are, they're awful. Writers hate them, but they are very necessary. So then they send you the cast list and they'll, you'll drip, they'll drip to the tune and say, we're trying to get. So for one of my episodes, they were going to try and get Joan Collins. And it, it, I think it came really close and then we didn't get. So, so, Occasionally we will rewrite stuff as the casting comes in. We need that to be a bit more like this, a bit more like that. Uh, certainly now, if someone lets me know there's a, a you know a, a different cultural background, if someone's black or Asian, then maybe I'll change the the names and make sure it's I give it a sensitivity read, make sure I'm not putting anything in there that uh, seems ridiculous. That makes sense. So I'm sure you're familiar with the the rules of like a classic era mystery and that when you write a mystery, you're not supposed to have the detective know anything that the audience can't know so they can have a chance to try to solve it. Was that challenging when you're writing these to kind of find opportunities to make sure the audience had the clues too? Yeah, I, I, that's what changes from draft to draft. So there'll, there'll always be a draft where it's really obvious and someone will read it and go, well, I, I mean, I can guess in the first 10 minutes he was done it. And then you pull it back and you pull it back and then everybody reads it again and you go, actually, I think that comes from left field. So let's give let's put a little clue in there. And you also want to make the red herrings not too red herringy as well. <laughs> so not too fishy. Um, so making sure that that feels real. So, so every draft is that constant discussion of is that working are we tipping it too much are we not giving the audience enough that's definitely the the, the discourse that's going on throughout the drafts so in, in the in the case of the schooled murder were there clues that that got cut in the edit you think or in the edit I, because sometimes we watch episodes and we're like okay there's a piece of information missing there and it's probably on the cutting room floor that the reason why we don't know that fact is because that scene got cut at some point. And it's it's often those very expositional scenes where Barnaby and whoever the sidekick is this time is is having a chat and as they stood by the cars in the in Carson Station car park. So those are often the, because they're dull and they're really boring and, and sometimes the, you see them in situ and go, we're just spoon feeding here. Let's cut that, cut that, cut that. But actually, for scolding murder, I think pretty much everything went in. I don't, I don't think we were missing a great deal. So I think Andy did great. I mean, he's a great director. So Andy put in what we needed. But the the director will ring you occasionally and go, "I'm thinking of cutting this scene, but am I pulling a thread? Am I?" cutting something that I don't realise is going to have a knock-on later. But for the most, yeah, occasionally. I think it's more the expositional standing around in the police station scenes that tend to go. Where they say, oh, I pulled this report and got this piece of information. Exactly. But it's a boring way to present it. That makes it's, sense. For the production staff, we stop and read everything that's on <laughs> We We have found all sorts of... We've only found one clear mistake. There's a, this is a closed set sign in one of the scenes. Oh, no. Where the set dresser said, dress the set. Yeah. So the, And didn't want anybody yeah. to touch anything. And then they forgot to take the sign away and they shot it. And it's in oh. the 
I love that kind of stuff. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> just makes it better. I think, I think filming in the current era, you might see a few, I've noticed a few little problems in, in things that have been filmed during the COVID time because you can't have everybody on set and everybody's trying to keep their distance. So having the, all those eyes, um, we've reduced the number of people kicking about. So um, on set, if you go, oh, I think that was over there. That's, that seems to be problematic at the moment. And, you know, actors are checking their own costumes because obviously people couldn't get up close and, and yeah. personal. That's getting better now. It's been very difficult to film anything that's period because the costumes are so uh, intricate. So uh, working on um, Discovery of Witches, we've had a few period bits, um, which has been quite oh, problematic, but we've sorted it out now. I can't imagine. And, and, and somebody who's whose job it is just to ensure that continuity and that period continuity that you don't see somebody in a mask way off in the distance. Exactly. I, I'm sure they're it's cutting enough, that kind of thing. It's hard enough with planes and noise, like audio guys deal with that all the time. Yeah. Um, if we're going to talk about school to murder, we have to talk about maggots. How did the maggots yeah. come about? <laughs> and <laughs> what did you write know that about scene that and go, actor. they're never going to do this. That actor was a trooper. Well, I I, re- I was quite shocked when I saw that footage because I thought, oh, they, they'll put a couple just on his cheek or something like that, but they went the full, um, it was very maggoty, let's put it that the way. full maggot, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> but the, the minute I, I read about this illegal gist, I needed um, James to be doing something dodgy that wasn't murders, basically. Mm-hmm. So what, what's a man who makes cheese do? But then started reading about this, this cheese that is, is illegal to export and the maggots can jump up into your eyes and things like that. It was just disgusting. Oh. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, and, and that's, um, she's trying to tip off uh, the police and throw them off the scent and, and get everybody else in trouble by putting the maggots on. It's supposed to be a bit of a red herring for the for the investigation. So yeah, I I was pretty shocked. I mean, good grief, what a trooper. And also because the Garotti murder is is perhaps a little dark. You, you, you don't need to see much of that, but then to get the full horror of it. And also he kind of deserves it. Yeah. <laughs> he does. Um, he, the, he is a midsummer trope of the unlikable middle-aged white male husband misogynist yeah it's horrible and and when you find out about that he sent jake away because he didn't want him to be part of the family and all of that he just a bit further down line go well he's no great loss to society so have a mouth of maggots you deserve exactly (laughs) i'm sure if you listen to the episode where we talked about this episode then you heard us talk about is lisa trying to say something about writers that if you don't Give them space to write. They might snap. It, I, do you know what? It's only looking back. I don't know. I can't remember why I wanted it to be. You know, it needed to be something that she could she could reasonably do in the village, but she just didn't feel connected. I needed her to be quite rarefied. This is where she's come from. Uh, and probably 
in their heads that he was like, oh, this will be great. We'll go back to the village. How wonderful. Uh, and within days, it was bringing that trauma of, of what she'd experienced at the school back. She probably saw Martine driving around in her open top red car and thought, oh, no, oh, no, I can't cope with this. And so the idea of writer's block is definitely a big part of it. The idea is you just can't write. You can't get five minutes to yourself. You've got your idiot husband getting obsessed with cheese and all of this kind of I mean, yes, yeah, I, I think most writers have been there in a small way. Most of us have not committed murders. I, I, as the chair of the Writers Guild, I feel I must say that. <laughs> most. <haven't>. Most. <laughs> <laughs> that you know of. We also spoke to Lisa about writing a vintage murder that we incorrectly thought was the first episode of the character D.S. Charlie Nelson. She did write one of the early episodes for Charlie, but not the first. So then you went on to write Nelson's first episode. So you didn't know it was going to be Jones's episode, but you knew you were writing Nelson's first episode. Yeah. Did they tell you who that character was since they were going to have him in that kind of serial storyline for a while? If I remember rightly, it, as I started writing, I think I, I came and got up. Oh, it'll be, it'll be the same old team. I was like, no, 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 uh, Jason's gone. Not not in a, under a cloud or anything. He just wanted to go off and try something mm-hmm. else. Um they hadn't cast, I'm afraid I cannot remember the name of the actor, that is my thing, but they hadn't cast him yet, but we had a, a very short biog for him. That it is a, it's a bit of a trope, he's come from the big cities, he's coming to this small town, he thinks he's, um, he underestimates Barnaby, he doesn't think that this country life is going to be for him, and, you know, by the time he realises that there's a, such a high murder rate in, in Carson that he's going to love uh, working there, and he, he, Barnaby earns his respect as well. It must have been interesting to have kind of the responsibility of, of writing a character the first, for the first time who you knew was going to be in there for yeah. seasons to come it's and it's lovely as well because you you get to put your little voice on him and and we do and he's such a great actor as well yeah. and he's gone on to um amazing things and and i'd never heard of him before um he came into the show so so it was quite a journey of discovery and there's always a nerve-wracking thing which is will the audience react to him well because everybody loved jason so much mm-hmm. and it's it was also a chance to you know, I think make sure that he had some investigative drive as well. Um, make sure that he had a job to do and he was bringing something to the investigation. That was what we wanted from from the very off for that character as well. And I think and he's a bit of an action man. You know, we've got scenes of him playing tennis later on and all that yeah. carry on. So um, I think we got the best out of him. I don't know if you saw any of the DS Scott episodes, but I think they were trying to bring that gritty London flawed detective in with that and it just didn't feel right no no and then he got sick and never showed up again (laughs) sick yeah (laughs) but yeah and and it's a a show that it's a very um fragile ecosystem and and it could have gone terribly wrong when john john nettles left i thought it was very clever although i don't know you've probably talked about you you know why they had to bring in someone who was a relation of of that character it's because in eu countries outside of the english-speaking world the show is called inspector barnaby so they needed to keep the name Um, and he didn't have a son to become barnaby and kelly wasn't going to do it kelly had a lot of careers but one of them was not being a detective (laughs) 
I think it's also a function of, of how it's written. The writers, there's no like the American system, the writers, and we don't sit in a room together. You're commissioned and you work alone. And there's a little bit, well, he's saying that in that episode. Can, so can you do something a bit different? Oh, we've already had a strangle, strangulation this this season. Can you do something different for the murder? So, so yeah, I think if, if it was an American show, we'd all be in a room together and we'd be building these great arcs for those um, continuing characters. But it just, just not how it works in, on that well, show. And in Midsummer, it doesn't really seem important. I mean, yeah. it's it, who if they're true to who they are throughout all the episodes that they're in, that's that's enough. I agree. And if you t- if we turn it into a soap, then it just wouldn't be Midsummer. It's, yeah. it's that those general little comedy boat ends, the, the beginning and the end, and the little story that that gives us something to cut away to maybe when things are a bit grim. I think that works really, really well for the show. So how long do you spend writing an episode like this in, on your own writing it? So from the soup to the nuts, it's a six-month job. Uh, so from the first pitch and up until when they're, they're and I, I don't say this lightly, when they're kidnapping you and bringing you down to Pinewood. So on every, every episode, I'm sure the writers have told you this, you'll get a phone call saying, oh, we love this draft, but we need to work it through a bit more. Can you come down to Pinewood? Now, I live in Leeds, which is in the north of England, so it's a, Doctor it's about a five-hour journey. Oh, do you, do you stay overnight? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and and the first time they did this, they were like, "I'll oh, come down this week and we'll do an edit." And and no one ever mentioned staying overnight. So I I didn't pack for an overnight stay. I went there on the Monday. I was still there on the Friday. Wow. So um, they'd send a very blushing runner out to buy me some uh, knickers and uh, some t-shirts blessing we, we went to uh finland to do some academic gigs and we were without our luggage the whole time we were there <gasps> oh no yeah we had to kind of do the same thing we had to go yeah. to a department store and just like is there anything here we can wear okay and we had to live in that so so we can relate to that <laughs> Yeah, and I, I know that I, I once didn't pack the jeans I needed for a trip to Berlin with the Writers Guild and end up studying a branch of CNA, which for any British people who were um, watching this, there's no such thing as CNA in the UK, closed down, but they have it on the continent, going, trying to think of the German for, I need bigger sizes. Where are your bigger <laughs> sizes? Bigger jeans. <laughs> It's when you just turn around and like show them your tush and go, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And this whole notion, like one of the episodes, they go from midsummer to Brighton and they stop halfway for lunch. I'm like, it's a 90 minute drive. Exactly. We do that in America to get to work sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and then again at the end of the day. Exactly. Well, no, thankfully, hopefully the commute is a is a dying thing now because of the joy of Zoom. So that's right. Uh, it's made life a lot better for writers. There's been less going down for an hour's script edit and then coming straight back on the train. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you talked a little bit about how you got the idea for the cheese. I have to ask you about another episode that you wrote because you wrote Saints and Sinners, which has the archaeological dig. Did you already know about archaeology? Were you a time team fan or something oh, or did you have to brush up on it? 
not I, I didn't know a thing. It was it was the idea of the the um, the relics that I found the, the religious relics that I found fascinating. I must have been reading something about them, um, and that idea of how it how a little industry can build up around it. Um, I, I have lots of friends in Ireland, so there's quite a bit of that sort of idolatry in, in Ireland around the Catholic Church, all that kind of thing. And I am an atheist, and and find it fascinating and I like the idea of a naughty vicar as well which I think is a real staple of, of British uh, detective drama so, so that yeah it started with um, that and then the idea that it would all be fake uh, and buried treasure in amongst it all as well and that that episode I think of all of them took shape really quickly because once I got into it I was like, oh this is really interesting and building it and building it and building it um, so I, I really love that episode I think I think it's of the ones I've written it's my favourite it's Saints and Sinners I've, I've never seen a rough cut when they've sent me the rough cuts of, of Midsummer. it's never disappointing because it's the best location manager everywhere. It looks amazing. Um, you know, great actors as well. But they they're so good at filming them. They always look fantastic. And that's not you know do, on a limited budget. It's not you know it's not a big budget show. But they they know how to pick their locations and make and light them to look amazing. They do a lot of filmic things. A lot of really good filmic things. There's an episode where they do a wonder that just shows up out of nowhere. You're like, whoa, this is a really like good wonder. It's like a crane shot that then sweeps down over the heads of people and then goes down to like face level and one smooth move. I don't even know how they did yeah, it. I'd somebody love to see how they had, did it. had watched their Spielberg that week. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. And, and those shots are, are much more achievable than they used to be because of drone technology yeah. now. It was a little bit overused at first. Like, all right, you've got the drone out. Well done. But now it, you can get the most, like say, sweeping cinematic shots that just look incredible with the drone now. Well, yeah, it, when the drone shot doesn't feel like a drone shot, when it actually feels like a helicopter shot is nice. But I also yeah. like it when they use the drones in ways that you would have never thought. There's a video online of one of a drone shot that goes into a into a bowling alley and through the bowling alley and then comes back out. And it's just, you know, you'd never see something like that. That's very, very cool, actually. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, the, the tech, we have great technicians in the UK as well. So, so I think if a, if a director comes on and goes, I'd, I'd really like to do this in a one, then everybody will go, okay, let's, uh, let's do it. Yeah, we can do it. You've written about cheese murders. You've written about uh, archaeology and, and relics. How about those rabbits? Where did that idea come from? That was, so they asked me about, for, that was my last one. So they'd asked me about for a fourth one and, and I think it was coming off Call the Midwife or something else. And I was like, oh, God, I'm really struggling to come up with a idea from this. And then Joe Wright um, sent me an email saying, uh, I was in a hotel this week and there was a, there was a pet show on. Um, and this guy <laughs> came into the bar and he had a pair of hamster-themed underpants on him showing everybody in the bar these underpants. <laughs> That was, and so I'll leave you with that. Okay. But then I started to do the research into these small animal shows and all the rest of it, and the enormous uh, 
competitiveness of them. And again, I think Midsummer really works when it's a world that outside of that village, it doesn't matter to anyone else. It's then those murders are not on the front page of the news of the world or the sun, but they're really important to the, you know, the Carson Gazette. Um, and so the idea of um, this little fiefdom where people really care about this pet show, um, that, that soon ignited it. And then I, and I still think it's my best murder, which is the, the rabbit fur in the, in the car <laughs> ventilation system. I, I was so proud of that. And it was a hard sell. Is, like, what, is that what would happen? Yes. Yeah. Why doesn't she have her inhaler? Uh, because the murderer takes it away and it, I had to really give it a, give it the sell and I think it works brilliantly do you have to think through like one of the things that we do for our episodes is we you know I do the crazy research of like well what happens if a maggot gets in your eye um but so so you have to know whether that cheese needle will actually kill somebody how do you figure that out Lots and lots of googling. There's a reason why I give a weekly donation to Wikipedia because God bless the people who write those things. And I regularly fall down a Wikipedia hole. And that's for these shows, that's great. It's like I've come out the other end with far more ideas for how I can kill these people. So yeah, the the rabbit thing, as I went and had a walk around a pet shop to think think things through and um, went on sort of Reddit accounts for chinchilla owners and things like that so all that stuff the research is, is the best bit but the problem is if anybody ever looks at my search history then you know I, there's an orange jumpsuit for me where yeah definitely. yeah i think i'm on some list somewhere <laughs> some government list somewhere I, yeah. the, for, for new tricks i googled how and this is before breaking bad how to cook meth and i did have one of the characters cooking meth in his kitchen that <laughs> that very nearly didn't get past the bbc uh, we snuck it by them. and uh, It's got to be just ex- accurate enough, but not like instructionally accurate, right? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> you run into that with explosives a lot of the time. You're like, he mixed this and this and... <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> the way things, I used to work in, at the start of my career, I worked in factual television. I worked for a science company and we had explosives around the place, bottles of mercury, all sorts of things. And there is an episode where we say how you make dynamite. We, we give the recipe. Um, and, but in factual television, that's fine. That's education, not in drama. No, no, not in drama. Do you find now that you've written that way, now that you've thought like, oh, here's a little slice of a world that I didn't know much about, but the people involved in it are really involved in. Are there worlds like that, that if you had the opportunity, you would want to dive into that you're more curious about? I think I think probably every writer has that, that area that, that they're trying to sell a show on. So for me, the, the Naughty Vicar thing persists. I love the idea of a, a character who should be the paragon of virtue in a community, but actually is dodgy as hell. And that, I find that fascinating. So I've, I've got a couple of pictures and, and one day I'll get them away. The Church of England genu- generally is very, very interesting. And I interviewed for this this other idea, I did interview quite a few vicars and an amazing woman who trains vicars and, and she should be the bishop. She had proper Christian, the sort of Christian faith you absolutely respect and believe in wasn't true of all the vicars I interviewed, if I'm absolutely honest. And it was wow. so fascinating. It's really interesting world. So that and 
religious belief in general. I have nothing but respect for people who have really great religious belief and you use it to make the world a better place, but there's a lot of people not doing that. <laughs> yeah, in, in Midsummer, the vicars are either really boring and kind of dry, you know, not very interesting, or they're murderers. Yeah. You know, lopping they're, people's heads off with a big sword. Absolutely. And that's exactly <laughs> as it should be. <laughs> Uh, you know, we, we put out a podcast about Midsummer. Do you listen to any other podcasts? Are um, you a podcast yeah. listener? If, if, it feels like there's such a, a wealth of podcasts. It is an embarrassment of riches at the moment. So I, I was on and I listened to one called The Moon Under the Water, which where the guests get to build their perfect pub, which, again, is a very British thing. Um, and that that was joyous. I really loved that. And I'd, I'm listening to a West Wing podcast at the moment. I'm doing a big West Wing rewatch, which I do probably once every couple of years. But I, I mentioned it on Twitter this time and someone said, oh, it's a really damaging show. Uh, I hope you watch it. Basically, I hope you're watching it through, you know, 21st century lens and suggested a, a podcast for me. It's difficult because Aaron Sarkin is a god to me. I really do think he's one of the greatest writers ever. I love him. But boy, sexual politics are poor. Woo! Yeah, that, especially through the lens of history, too. I mean, you can only yeah. excuse so much, right? And watching that first series of West Wing where uh, basically the women's job is to go, I don't understand this aspect of American government. Please explain it to me, Josh. And it just over and over again, it's like, oh, man. <laughs> Speaking of difficult vicars, how was the second season of Fleabag for you? I thought it was better than the first series, actually. I really, I mean, it's, it's I think uh, British writers have a very complicated relationship with that show because Phoebe was was thrust into the spotlight. It must have been a really uncomfortable place to be uh, at first. And, and you'll know that she, people knew her as an actor from Broadchurch, and then suddenly she's in this huge show um, saying really important but really uncomfortable things, and then she's running Kimmy and Eve, and then she's in a Star Wars movie, and then she's got this massive deal from, from Amazon. And it was around the time that the Guild were doing lots of work on female writers and how we're not very well represented in British television and British film. And every time we spoke someone, yeah, but what about Phoebe Waller-Bridge? We love her, it's great, but don't think that because she's had a success, women writers are, are ever, it was enormously frustrating. But I think that second series of Fleabag is some of the best television I've ever seen. And I think I think she's opened a door for so many other writers, to, for women not to be perfect and for their sexual relationships to be complicated. And I think without that second series of Fleabag, we wouldn't have I May Destroy You. I think she opened the door um, yep. for Michaela to then, who then took the ball and ran with it to the end zone. There we go, an American sports reference for you. Those women are kicking down doors and, and Fleabag is just... And really weirdly, my, I've, I recently lost my father and he had very eclectic tastes in television. He loves a Briti- loved a British show called Last of the Summer Wine, which was just a silly comedy and, and it used to drive my mum mad. Every time she came to the room, he was watching it all over again. Dinner Ladies, a, a Victoria Wood show. Uh, but he loved Fleabag. He watched it three times. Wow. That was great. That fourth wall breaking moment in Fleabag where he asks her who he, she's talking to, I, it stunned me. 
stunned me. I, I held my breath like I would do in a thriller. Finally, we got around to our latest favorite TV show, Ted Lasso. You have all these women's voices, all these diverse voices. Why are we obsessed with a show about a happy white man from America playing <laughs> sports? But it is the best thing on television right now. So I only care, I've only got a subscription to Apple TV this week. I got it free with the phone. I got to upgrade my phone. And they went, do you want this? I went, yeah, yeah. And then I'd seen people talking about the show and having a very strong reaction to it. And I, and I think like a lot of people, when someone goes on and on about something, you know, is it as good as everyone said? Is it? Well, spoiler alert, I... I rinsed through the first series in less than 24 hours. I couldn't stop watching it. And I was sobbing. I mean, just crying at it, but loving it. It was happy tears. And I don't know, maybe it's after the, the last couple of years that, you know, what we've we've been through as a planet, that we, just the idea of someone triumphing because they're nice, because they care, because they believe... Um, it really felt like bound for the sun. I had a very similar feelings about Shit's Creek and The Good Place, that that, that modelling of, do you know what, be nice and you'll win people over. It just felt, oh, it's like bound for the soul. So, and it can I, be interesting to watch nice characters. Yeah. We they don't came, have to be evil. We came exactly. to it almost exactly the same way you did about three weeks ago. Yeah, and everybody was saying blah blah blah, and then what what happened was I saw the YouTube clip of where she comes in and they talk about divorce when she finally <gasps> confesses to him at a moment of television that I never thought I would ever see. Having yeah. we've both gone through divorces and that tears, yeah, and I saw that and I'm like, I have to know. Like, I'm overwhelmed by that moment, not knowing any of the backstory. And then I saw the backstory. I'm like, oh, my gosh, when this happens again, I'm just going to be a fountain. Yeah. And I think also it was Jason Sudeikis having, uh, when he did the um, Series 2 premiere, having Marcus Rashford, et cetera, those people's names on his jumper. If if you've been in the UK, the, the discourse about, footballers and taking the knee and all of that. I mean, you had it with Colin Kaepernick, but mm-hmm. oh my God, it's been so toxic. And to, the minute I saw that photograph of him supporting those uh, black football players, I, I don't care what how good the show is, I'm going to give it a go. Yeah. Um, and and it, it doesn't shy away from that. The, I've just watched the, the Christmas episode, which was released this week, and, and without spoilers, because I know people will only just be getting around to watching it. Um, the idea of, of different cultures coming together, that reality of what it must be like to be in a premiership team and away from home at Christmas. Oh, it broke me. And I was in pieces. Funny. Incredible. Oh, it's so funny. Oh, don't, don't pay attention to him. He's just Dutch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, what a joke. And that, and that joke where he hands back the American infantry man to him and says, we have a different relationship with the American. <laughs> so beautifully timed. But also, and I, I can say this because I'm, you know, I'm a Legion United fan, which is a, a, now a premiership football team. Um, I can say this, they're getting the football right as well. Yeah. 
so it, it can often be, with the greatest of respect to your wonderful nation, it can be a bit uncomfortable when Americans do Britain. And and whilst I think it is a very love actually, well, although Richmond does look like that, it, it is pretty and, and it's a, all the buildings are grade two listed, so they have to maintain them. It still feels real. It still feels like the UK that I know, and it is lovely. I, th- I think sometimes it's a little bit gloss over. I think Supremacy Clubs um, are probably not nice, but go- having Jamie Tart as that character who comes good is fascinating. Oh, because was I think Jamie asked reflection. for the tape? The <gasps> I just want Roy to come on Midsummer. Oh, yes. And the fact that he writes the show as well, he's has been in it as well. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Oh, he's great. And that is what a character that is. It's just glorious. Well, and what, like, it is a show that is rewriting masculinity too, which needs to be done. Men apologize. Roy was one of the first guys to, to be on television and say something like, Oh, I'm sorry. I was being an idiot there. Yeah. I'm sorry. Let's move on. Like, and I that, love that. And, and, and that so many uh, shows, they either work up to the grand male apology, which I'm like, you, you just need to apologize in the moment, not some grand apology later. People and, apologize every day. It's not a special occasion. You do it all the time, don't you? But yeah, no, I, I, and I think it's interesting now that's for other shows I've noticed that observation of, of masculinity. I think it's always sunny in Philadelphia has gone on that journey to a certain extent uh, with the, the Rob, Mc, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Rob McCallany, Calum, yeah. the guy who's just bought Wrexham Football Club over here with Ryan Reynolds. Um, that journey for him and then he's coming out scenes and all the rest of it, um, it that felt progressive as well for, for a show that is incredibly about toxic masculinity. Oh, yeah. To explore that, I thought was brilliant. And, and I really, the first couple of the episodes that I was like, I don't uh, I, I think, I don't, I'm not sure I'm going to, uh, people rave about this. I'm not getting it. And then I fell in love with it. And to me, I know we're a midsummer podcast, but Ted Lasso is, it was personally transformational. Like I, I want to be that more like that kind of person. Yeah. You know, and, like life is hard enough without creating problems. You should just help one another. And that that sense that, you know, you don't always have to be on top. I love how for the, for the first part, they said, oh, I don't care about winning. It's about, you know, getting the team to work together. So I think it's absolutely beautiful. I think that's that's great because that is how you win in the end, is having a good time doing what you're doing and not hurting other people. Yeah. I think that's absolutely, I think it's a, the message is just glorious and it's lovely. I love Jason today because I've loved him in everything I've ever seen him in as well. Well, and Anthony Head was just fantastic. <sighs> oh, I couldn't believe how good, like how much you hate him. It's so subtle. The way he's putting it down felt so, I think probably every woman watching that, yeah, 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 yeah. I've had had that before. We've all had a partner like that or a boss like that. Yeah. And to bring it around to Midsummer, (laughs) Annette Badlands is a treasure. Yeah. I had forgotten she was in Jabberwocky, which I was like, Wait a minute. I've been watching this woman since I was 18 when I saw Jabberwock. She is just brilliant. She's that great, great British tradition of the grand dam, battle axe, 
Tennis. I'd, I'd put her in the same bracket as Miriam Margulies, for for example, who I had the pleasure of writing for on, on Call the Midwife. Um, yeah, that strong, uncompromising, I have zero Fs to give woman, which I just I just love writing women like that. And I think people love watching women like that. And that's mm-hmm. one of the eternal frustrations of pitching to um executives is sometimes we go, do you know what? People want to see themselves on telly. They mm-hmm. want to see that role model of, you know, I don't I don't care how I look. I just I want to have that power and I can control a room by being incredibly strong and but feminine at the same time i think she's she's in that that ilk i want to see i want to see more women like that, more older women on top of well she she has no time for barnaby when uh she joins midsummer she's yeah, like, no. she's like you're boring you're not nearly fun enough i'm way more fun than you are and Absolutely. again she's not glamour she's not a size two she is she, you know her face is unique yeah and I love that about her. I like watching I, I, her. I think the the, the medical examiners have, they've done a really good job with them on this. Because I loved writing Tamsin uh, as that very sort of slightly uptight, but actually gets the job done. Never, never phased by anything. She said, "You need that person in Midsummer who doesn't go." Oh my god, she was killed by cheese. Just goes. <laughs> What's the murder weapon? You're standing in it. He's, I, yeah. I'm so proud of that line. It's that, very good. The idea of of the indefatigable, I think, is just just lovely. And, and Annette Badland does such a good job of that. I love that Kate pokes at Barnaby um, and Jones for being too uptight. Yeah. Like, she has this super serious job, and yet she's like, you guys should lighten up. Yeah. I she comes to my birthday party or whatever, you know? Exactly. And the, when she's living with um because I wrote that, when we find out she's a bit of a slob. Yes. Like, oh, I love that. I love nice. that. You I know, obviously that. at work she's gotta be just so, but yeah, the spaghetti it's messy all around. <laughs> you know, I love imperfect women. I don't love perfect women. Yeah. There's no perfect women. No, no, no. those aren't real people. Yeah. One of the questions you get asked when you, you're writing things with for female characters, the producers will get antsy if the characters, female characters get angry or vindictive or are not perfect. And the question you get asked is, but will we like her? It's like, well, maybe not in that moment, not in that scene, but down the line, we will do and we'll understand her. It's never a question I'm asked about male characters. Uh, and in fact, now I just throw it back. I just go, I'm not, I'm not even answering that. Good for you. Yeah. And the writing is better for it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Characters need to be flawed. They need to have quirks. Perfection is, is boring. That's my one peeve about Midsummer is that Sarah Barnaby needs flaws. She and is, you know what? She's the lovely actor's lovely and, and oh, has yeah. a real sense of comedy as well. Yeah. She can she's be just too perfect. perfect. <laughs> she doesn't have it. Any bad quirks or bad habits or, or anything. I think mean, she's got the slight, slightly problem. sarcastic gene. Yeah, I don't think that's a flaw. (laughs) (laughs) When Barnaby found out that that one character was seeing women housewives on the side, she was like, oh, really? (laughs) Oh, when she got the the organic veg delivery, yeah. Is there anything that you're working on now that that you want people to know about or that you're excited about? 
So I'm I'm back on uh, Call Me Wife, which is a completely different show. Wow, uh, yeah. To, to Midsummer Murders, and that's been lovely. If you're in the UK, hopefully theatre will get going again next year. My theatre work will be going on tour, but uh, other than that, keep watching Midsummer because it's such a great show. Well, you you think you'll ever write another episode for Midsummer? Possibly. Although it's had, it's had a change of uh, personnel because company make it now instead of Bentley Pictures. Although I'm doing some development work with with company at the moment. Um, it's a big responsibility to take it on. It's a big chunk of work. So maybe if they asked me back, I'd have to have to see what I've got, got in the pipeline, but uh, never say never. Thank you so much for talking to us. This is so oh, fun. It's been such a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> Likewise. Thank you so much for your time. An absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, thanks for having me. Thank you so much. You've been thanks. awesome. All right, maniacs. That was the great Lisa Holdsworth. All her info is in the show notes, so show her some love this week. And we will return next week with episode 96, The Christmas Haunting. Bye, maniacs. Bye, maniacs.